Hi. You're listening to Cultivate Curiosity, a podcast that inspires the next generation to stay curious. Cultivate Curiosity is brought to you by the Emerald Coast Science Center, a nonprofit interactive science museum and STEAM educational facility in Fort Long Beach, Florida. This podcast is perfect for anyone curious about the world we live in because you never know what we'll talk about next. Hi, I'm Harley, an educator and the community affairs coordinator. Hi, I'm JC. I'm the social media coordinator. And hi, I'm Diane. I'm the director. And today we're going to talk about one of my favorite things, my party favor that I give out anytime I get to go speak at the Kiwanis or the Rotary Club or something like that, the periodic table. And I'll tell you why this is one of my favorite things to talk about is because I think that we do a really bad job of talking about the periodic table. And I think when we teach it to kids in schools, we just make them hate it. But if you really think about what the periodic table actually is, I mean, on a single sheet of paper, you are holding everything we know about everything in the universe right there is a list of ingredients of what it takes to make the whole entire universe. Living things, non-living things, stars, oceans, animals, trees. I mean, it's all there on that single sheet of paper. And nobody appreciates what the periodic table actually is because I think the way we teach it is like, oh, you have to remember hydrogen has one proton and one electron. It has an atomic mass of this and it has these many isotopes. And that's the boring way of talking about the periodic table. The periodic table is a living, breathing document, and we encounter it in everything that we do in our lives. We just don't think about it the right way. And there's so many incredible stories wrapped up in how the periodic table came to be. And those are some of the things that we want to point out and highlight today is talk about some of those great stories inside of the periodic table. So this is like the ultimate achievement of knowledge of everything that we know is written right here on a single sheet of paper. And it's universal, universal in the sense that it looks the same in any language. Helium is helium. You know, it has the chemical symbol of H-E. It doesn't matter what language you're reading it in or you're talking about it in or what country you're in. It is always helium. It's always spelled the same, always has the same chemical symbol, always has the same atomic number, atomic mass, all of those things, they don't change. Same number of protons, same number of (laughs) neutrons. Exactly. These these things are constants. So again, I get super excited about the periodic table. So you could probably tell that already. I'm dragging Harley and JC along with me today. They have some really cool things to share as well. So great. So we sort of laid the foundation for the periodic table, which was, you know, pretty much everybody calls Dmitry Mendeleev the father of the periodic table. And he put this thing together in 1869. So that's been over 150 something years. But in 2019, they celebrated the 150th anniversary of the periodic table. And so that was the International Year of the Periodic Table of Chemical Elements. That was just, you know, an incredible thing for us as a whole world celebrating the periodic table in 2019. And I know JC's got a couple things she wants to share about some of our favorite periodic tables that you're going to find in the notes for today's podcast. Mm -hmm. So we have the first one from Compound Interest. So these were actually from the 150th anniversary. They came out with a variety, I think you said like 20-something? An advent calendar. Yes. Mm. Yeah. So 24 different periodic tables. Yes. So that's really awesome. You can actually find all those on their website, compoundchem.com. We'll link it. They also have a Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, Compound Chem as well. So Just check that out in general. They have a lot of really great ones. They put something out for women's history as well, which is 
this month too. So they have a lot of really cool ones. And then we also will have a link to my very personal favorite periodic table. Well, and the reason why I really like that one is it's colorful, it's bright, but it also shows you where you would encounter each one of these elements in your everyday life, which I think makes it very translatable and applicable and makes you understand how, oh yeah, that's right. That I, I do use this every <laughs> single day of my life. So we're going to start out and do like 30,000 foot overview of the history of the periodic table. And it starts with one of my all-time favorite scientists, okay, partially because he just has such a beautiful name when you say it, Antoine Laurent Lavoisier. So (laughs) he was considered to be the father of chemistry. He was one of these gentleman scientists. So if you think in the 16-1700s, the people that were scientists were the people that like had a bunch of money and they could create their own laboratories within their homes and they just, you know, studied science. They were curious and they were just natural phenomenon and things and so that's what they did. But the reason why I like him, he has a great story. So he was a really rich French dude and he married a 14 year old girl. Her name was Marie Anne. And the thing about it was, is that she herself was a very intelligent young woman and she worked with him as his laboratory partner for all of these years. And she worked on him with all of his experiments and he designed all of this very incredible, delicate glassware that he used in his experiments. He was considered to be one of the people that came up with the first list of elements and he also named hydrogen and oxygen. So he was just this really incredible scientist, but he had one small mistake in his life. He was part of something called the General Farm, which was an organization that from the King of France was given the opportunity to collect taxes. And so during the reign of terror in France, when they got out la guillotine and they went after all of these people that were in the government, the masses did. And so his life was cut short because he was part of this taxing organization and he was actually one of the last people to be executed by the guillotine in France. So I can't imagine how many more discoveries that he could have made had that not been, you know, the outcome that he had. And fortunately, his wife was not murdered in that Mm -hmm. fashion. But see, there's great stories embedded in the periodic table. I I bet if we told a bunch of... We told a bunch of high school kids, hey, one of these guys was guillotined in, you know, the French Revolution. Kids would be like, what? Tell me that story. Tell me that story. So again, like I said, he was one of the ones that really centralized and codified a lot of chemistry terminology and experimentation and science in general. Then later on, there was a German physicist that also worked on determining the molecular weights or the atomic weights of elements. And he had published a at an international conference in Germany in 1860. That point, they concluded that hydrogen would be assigned the atomic weight of one and the atomic weight of all the other elements would be relative to hydrogen. So they said, well, carbon is 12 times heavier than hydrogen, so carbon would have an atomic weight of 12. And then there was a British chemist, John Newlands, that arranged the elements into a periodic table in an increasing order of their atomic masses. And he found that every eight elements had similar properties. So he called that the law 
of octaves, and we still hear about that today. So he arranged the elements in eight groups, but he didn't leave any gaps for any undiscovered elements. And that's one of the things that Dmitri Mendeleev did was when he looked at it and he looked at the elements that we knew existed and he printed them out on cards and then he kept rearranging the cards to come up with the design of the periodic table, leaving gaps and spaces because he knew that we didn't know everything. He predicted the discovery of other elements as well. And so, of course, that was in 1869. And then later on, some of those elements were discovered, which then gave credibility to his version of the periodic table. And the 105th element in the periodic table was named Mendelavium after him. And, and he has a really good story, too, because he was, like, I think the, the youngest of 12 kids, and he and his mom hiked from one side of Russia to the other side so that he could go to university. And, like, as soon as they got to St. Petersburg, his mom died. So he was just this, you know, young man by himself wow. and, you know, went and studied chemistry and, you know, later on developed the periodic table. So when the United Nations decided to celebrate the 150th anniversary of the periodic table in 2019, their thought processes and their quote on, you know, why they chose to do that was the periodic table of chemical elements is more than just a guide or catalog of the entire known atoms in the universe. It is essentially a window on the universe, helping to expand our understanding of the world around us. All right, so let's talk about how elements are named. There have been many new elements added to the periodic table. Science textbooks around the world have become suddenly out of date because of this, and there have been four new chemical elements added, and a big decision now lies ahead. Elements 113, 115, 117, and 118 need to be given their official names and symbols. New elements can be named after mythological concept, a mineral, a place, or country, a property, or a scientist. The names have to be unique and maintain historical and chemical consistency. This means a lot of eums. The most recent tradition has been to name them after places or after people. The places chosen tend to be where the element was discovered or first manufactured. The sweetest village of Itterby has managed to get four named after it, and we'll talk about those later. And no one has yet named an element after themselves, but many elements are named in tribute to important scientists. Albert Einstein was given Einsteinium. This can also be a way of righting the wrongs of the past. Lise Meitner, we'll talk about later, was really the chemist who spotted nuclear fission, but she was never really recognized for it because she was Jewish and a woman. To be able to give an element a name that reminds us of her is a great way to share that importance. The naming process also isn't very quick. The scientists who discovered them will start things off by proposing a name, but it will be down to the International Union of Pure and Applied Chemistry, or IUPAC, to approve it. A special division of the U.S. Space Group has to accept the proposal. There is then a public review period of five months before IUPAC Council gets the final approval. Once it's ready, the name is announced in the scientific journal Pure and Applied Chemistry. Scientists sometimes get creative with their names. Mythical names have proved popular. Promethium was named after a character from a Greek legend who stole fire from the gods to give to humans and was punished by being chained to rock so an eagle could feed on his liver. The name was meant to reflect the fact that synthesizing new elements often requires sacrifice. There is hidden meaning in the table, as in the naming of prosodium and 
neodium. They replaced didium, wrongfully thought to be an element, but in fact a mixture of the two. And then naming an element is not about functionality. There's a tremendous romance to this. Names are always very important. So I'm going to piggyback on Lisa Meitner for just a minute because I think this is another one of those great stories that it's embedded inside of the um, periodic table. So as we just said, she was German and she was Jewish and she grew up in Germany. She was actually an Austrian citizen, but she grew up in, in Germany and she studied physics. Well, at this point in time, women didn't study physics. Her family had to hire a private tutor to tutor her in physics because none of the schools in the area would have accepted her as a student. So she eventually went on to become a professor. She actually worked with Max Planck, so if you've ever remember Planck's constant. Mm. Ah, so yeah. So she <laughs> yes. actually worked with him in Germany. She eventually became his laboratory assistant. And there she met her longtime friend and the person that she collaborated with, whose name was Otto Hahn. And they discovered some new isotopes together. And they moved to the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute in 1912. She was working without pay because she just, she wanted to do the work mm -hmm. and they weren't going to pay a woman to do it. And then in 1917, they finally granted her her own physics lab. In 1923, she pinpointed the case of a strange emission of electrons from excited atoms. And this phenomenon is known as the Auger effect after a French scientist, Pierre Auger, who also discovered it that same year, but he got it to be named after him. Mm -hmm. Her. And not her. And then she became the first woman in Germany to hold a full professorship And when she moved to the University of Berlin in 1926. And she headed a research program in nuclear physics, which was is pretty... her time frame the same time frame as Marie Curie, just different areas She of was the world. a little bit later. Later. Okay. Yeah, because Marie Curie got her first Nobel Prize in 1903. And okay. this is, she's in the 19... Right yeah, Yeah, she's like in the 1930s. Gotcha. So, and this was a really exciting time for physics because they had only discovered the neutron in the 1930s. So there's no like nuclear chemistry until you start taking into effect like neutrons. And then once you can start looking at neutrons and you can start talking about nuclear fission and nuclear fusion. And so everybody was trying to create this transuranium elements, which is elements that are heavier than uranium is. And there was this huge international quest that was going on at the same point in time. Like this idea had come at the time it come. So all of these different scientists are working on it. So Ernest Rutherford was in England working on this project and element 104 and the periodic table is named after him. Irene Jolie Curie was in France and this is Marie Curie's daughter mm -hmm. who later on went, went on to win a Nobel Prize of her own. Enrico Fermi was in Italy and he has element number 100 named after him. And then Meitner and Hahn were working on this problem in Germany. So you can see these are some really big names. I mean, they're on the periodic table of elements. Mm -hmm. So you know that this was you know a huge time in this research field. Well, so we're in the 1930s and we're in Germany. So we all kind of know what's going to happen next is that um, Hitler comes into power in Germany in 1933 and it becomes very hard for women. It becomes very hard for Jewish women particularly. And all of her friends kept telling her that she needed to leave. She needed to leave Germany and she kind of hung out a little bit too long. Um, and at the very end, she left and she had like $10 and a diamond ring that 
her friend had given her to use is to sell so that she would have some money when she finally got out of the country. So it was that desperate the times were. So then she left and she went to go to Stockholm, Sweden, where she worked with Niels Bohr. Mm-hmm. Niels Bohr, Borium element 107 on the periodic table, mm-hmm. and also the namesake of our newest sugar glider, Niels. Mm-hmm. So shout out for that one. And But she continued working with Otto Hahn in Germany secretly. They were working on this idea of nuclear fission, which is where uh, decay particles could... Why, why would something like uranium over time become less? And that's because it was fission and the things were breaking apart. And in 1939, of course, this is, you know, during the height of World War II or leading up to World War II, Otto Hahn wrote this paper and he submitted it and it was accepted to the journal and he completely left her out of it. She'd been doing this research for all of these years. She had been working in Sweden and sending him information back. And he used this information in this paper. And oopsie, he gets a Nobel Prize from that. And she got nothing. nothing. Exactly. So I think that's when we talk about, you know, they were saying that this was a great way to honor someone who had been overlooked, who had made great contributions, but had been overlooked. And so that's why they decided to name the element Mitrion after her. So I like that story. So again, just another, you know, cool historical story that kind of comes out of the periodic table of elements. So to finish off our podcast for today, we've got some periodic table jokes and puns for you. And then a couple of different elements that we just find to be our favorite. You guys maybe have heard some of these jokes before, maybe not. Who knows? (laughs) For one of them, two guys walk into a restaurant. One guy says, I would like some H2O. The other guy says, I would like some H2O too. The waiter delivers the drink and the second guy dies after drinking his. Who knows why? But um, (laughs) (laughs) Hydrogen peroxide is H2O too. H2O is water. Don't drink hydrogen peroxide, friends. (laughs) Another one. This one is kind of funny, especially if you are aware of your chemical symbols. Sodium, 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 Batman. (laughs) Sodium's chemical symbol is... N-A. N-A. You have to go na-na-na-na-na-na-na. No, you say sodium. (laughs) You don't say na-na-na. All right, chemist number one. Do you have any sodium bromate? Chemist two, nah, bro. <laughs> Again, just more chemical symbols. Sodium is in a bromate is Br and then an O for oxygen. One question for you. What did the chemist say when he found two isotopes of helium? Answer, hee hee. <laughs> Final one for you. What does a good doctor do for his patients? He heliums. <laughs> Just some of my favorite little jokes. Maybe you'll remember, maybe not. I probably won't remember any tomorrow. <laughs> some of my favorite periodic table elements, they all seem to fall under the alkali earth metals. Just maybe a coincidence. I don't really know. I, again, referenced Diane's favorite periodic table, the one she mentioned earlier, the elements.wlonk.com. This one is great. The pictures are wonderful. The alkaline earth family is the second most reactive group, and its elements can't be found free in nature. They're called alkaline earth metals because they form alkaline solutions, hydroxides, um, when they react with water. Earth was the alchemist's term for the oxides of the alkaline earth metals. So if you're looking at your periodic table, it's like the second row. One of my favorite 
one of the alkali earth metals is magnesium. Magnesium is essential for plant growth, which I love plants. Magnesium is the central core of the chlorophyll molecule in plant tissue. Thus, if magnesium is deficient, the shortage of chlorophyll results in poor and stunted plant growth. Magnesium also helps to activate specific enzyme systems, and enzymes are complex substances that build, modify, or break down compounds as part of the plant's normal metabolism. So a little bit more specific if you're really curious, Mg2 plus is the central atom of the chlorophyll molecule and fluctuates in its levels in the chloroplast regulate the activity of key photosynthetic enzymes. So it's all within the, the process of photosynthesis. Another one of my favorite elements is beryllium, and this one catches my eye quite literally. Beryllium's name comes from the mineral beryl. Beryl beryllium aluminum silicate, which its compound is really long. It makes up a whole range of glittering gemstones, such as aquamarine, heliodore, and the most well-known, which is emerald, and emerald is so pretty. It's my favorite. It was from emeralds that beryllium as an element was first discovered, that the stone might harbor a new element that was suspected in about the 18th century, Nicholas Louis Vaquelin was first to confirm the presence of beryllium in emerald, but he has been unable to separate from its oxide. 30 years later, about in 1928, the metal was isolated and he, this person, extracted it from beryllium chloride by reacting it with potassium. Emeralds were known to the ancient Egyptians, Romans, and Celts. Their beautiful green color comes from traces of chromium, vanadium, and they are rarer than diamonds. Now, they're very pretty, but they can also be a little scary and a little dangerous. Beryllium has known biological role, and indeed, it can be harmful to the human body. Brief exposure to a lot of beryllium or extended exposure to a little will bring on the incurable lung condition known as berylliosis. It is also listed as a Category 1 carcinogen, and however, the tiny amount in the average person of around 0.035 milligrams presents about no health risk. And then my final favorite element, maybe not my final, but just for sake of time, calcium. You could say there are electrons in the shells, literally. There are two in the first electron shell, eight in the second electron shell, another eight in the third shell, and two in the fourth and outermost shell of calcium. That's if you're looking at it more scientifically, but shells are also made of calcium carbonate, real shells that we find out in nature. All mollusks build their own shells, whether they live in the water or on land. Those are creatures like snails, clams, oysters, mussels, and they use an organ called a mantle to secrete layers of calcium carbonate, which crystallize and then harden. And so I have a few favorites as well. My first one is yttrium. It's a silver metallic transition metal, chemically similar to lanthanides, and has often been classified as a rare earth metal element. Yttrium is almost always found in combination with lanthanide elements in rare earth minerals, and is never found in nature as a free element. It is the only stable isotope in the the only isotope found in the Earth's crust. And so this was named after iterbite, a mineral first identified in 1787 by the chemist Carl Arrhenius. He named the mineral after the village Itterby in Sweden, where it had been discovered. When one of the chemicals in iterbite was found to be previously unidentified, yttrium, the element, was named after the mineral. And we said there was a couple other ones, Diane, that are named after. Oh, so yeah, the Itterby is a town in Sweden, and these um, materials came out of a mine nearby there, and it's the only town that has four elements on the periodic table named after them. So yttrium, terbium, erbium, and yttrium. Cool. The reason why I like this is it's because 
it is actually in lasers. So we, I don't know if you guys know, but we have a Glowforge and it uses lasers. So that was kind of cool. And then my last one is cadmium. It's a soft, silvery white metal that is chemically similar to the two other stable metals in group 12, zinc and mercury. It was discovered in 1817 simultaneously by Strahmeyer and Hermann, both in Germany, as an impurity in zinc carbonate. This is kind of a toxic element. We use it less because of that, it, and it's in batteries, so we actually use nickel cadmium batteries, and then we're replacing them with nickel metal hydride and lithium ion batteries. But one of its few new uses, which I assume is much safer, is that it's in cadmium telluride solar panels. Do you have any favorites, Diane? Oh, of course I do. Okay. <laughs> the whole entire periodic table. <laughs> no. Pick no. one. No, yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> no, that goes without saying. Um, I, I really like when we look at the ones that are uh, man-made, mm -hmm. which, you know, that we make in, like, these particle accelerators, and, you know, we smash things together in order to make these, and they have a really, really, really super short half-life. But I love to look at the names of them, and especially across the very bottom of the periodic table, because there's americurium, there's berkelium, and there's California. <laughs> Californium. So yeah. I always say, can you guess what university did a lot of this research? <laughs> and obviously, of course, it's the University of California at Berkeley. So, and you know, last week we talked about the one Tennessean, which was the one that one of our African-American scientists worked mm. on. And so, you know, again, it goes back to that thing of like, if you discover it, you get to sort of name it. But again, IUPAC has to approve your name mm -hmm. before it actually goes forward. So, but no, I, I, I challenge you guys to grab a copy of any periodic table and take it out and just, you know, just look at it and think about how wonderful it is and how incredible it is that we know all of the things that we know and can distill them into this single sheet of paper. You know, everybody should carry one around with them and do like a little periodic table scavenger hunt, you know, like pull it out in the morning. Okay, I'm going to go look for something that contains neodymium today or, you know, something like that, you know, and it would be kind of fun and just, I think just brings wonder and joy into your lives. Mm -hmm. yeah. I definitely think it's very different the teaching it and then seeing all of these different mm -hmm. variations mm -hmm. because like usually you just look at it you see the numbers and you see symbol and that's it like you're looking at it to be like well what what is yeah. this on my test or something. I've recently seen some teachers try to teach it by allowing the students to create their own version of the periodic table yes. with whatever sort of thing that they truly enjoy so like Pokemon. Yeah. And they have to establish the groups and the rows and the columns and like number them and give them atomic symbols and give them atomic numbers. That and cool. I think that's also a really fun way to teach mm -hmm. it because yeah. then it sparks their interest of what they already like, but also they have to reference something mm -hmm. to make their project. So I think and that's super cool. It's not just like a blank page yep. with numbers mm -hmm. and letters. No. It actually means something to them. So exactly. Okay, well, I think that is all for our periodic table podcast. We'll see you in two weeks. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Cultivate Curiosity. If you have any questions, feel free to email us at socialmedia at ecscience.org. Tune in for our next episode in two weeks. <laughs>